I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. No, not it. It's precisely what they do. They are. Love mm-hmm. is where you find it. Where you find it. Where you find it. Love mm-hmm. is where you find it. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode 18 of season 1, featuring special guest Trent Horn debating capitalism. Today's episode was originally recorded on May 6, 2021. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whip and Stock Publishers, who published my 2015 book, Folk Phenomenology, Education, Study, and the Human Person. Give us this day, daily prayer for today's Catholic. Solidarity Hall, Eden, plus Utopia. Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions. Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for black Catholics. Where Peter is, there is the church. The Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos, and... Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The featured sponsor for today's episode is the Institute for Christian Socialism, building a movement of the ecumenical Christian left. Right now, they are running a membership drive at christiansocialism.com backslash membership that offers uh, members the opportunity to not only consume uh, media that they create through their journal and through other forms of their outreach, but also to join with other Christian socialists, social democrats, democratic socialists, to organize and to create community. They offer a twice-monthly base society gathering, a six-month ICS-based curriculum, uh, the opportunity to contribute ideas, expertise, strategy, networks, and resources, And, of course, um, the opportunity to organize in this tradition. So, please um, consider maybe becoming a member. Um, Consider reaching out to them if you're interested in membership but maybe can't afford it. And maybe um, just inform yourself on the work that goes beyond the uh, fantastic work they do in terms of curating and creating media in the digital commons of uh, the Internet. You can find links to the Institute for Christian Socialism in the show notes, as usual, as well as you can find it to all of our wonderful sponsors. If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology, please share this episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and maybe leave us a review or a rating, and you can even drop a tip if you'd like. You can also find Folk Phenomenology on social media, on Twitter especially, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's episode features an extended discussion forum debate with Trent Horn. Uh, Some of you may recall that I debated Trent Horn in a more formal environment sponsored by Catholic Answers uh, in June of 2020. That debate was focused on the question of socialism and in particular its compatibility uh, with Catholicism. Trent had agreed at the time that uh, he was willing to have uh, a debate 
that focused on capitalism uh, as opposed to one so specifically focused on socialism. And uh, that's the debate that you're about to hear today. The format is different, and we do talk a bit about the difference in format and my own acceptance of some of the critiques of the earlier approach and format. And the source text, if you will, for this debate, as I believe uh, for the last one, is a book that Trent Horn uh, co-published with Catherine uh, Pakaluk called uh, Can a Catholic Be a Socialist? So if you're interested in uh, where some of the basic operating premises for some of my questioning um, or the basis upon which Trent is speaking from in terms of his uh, responses to those questions, that would be the book we are working from. I really enjoyed getting to know Trent better during this discussion, both during the recorded and the unrecorded portions, and I really came away with a sense that we do both share a firm conviction and a need for dialogue, a need that I relate to loving the world, Dilexi Mundum. Today on Folk Phenomenology, we have Trent Horn. Trent, welcome to my show. Sam, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, before we get started here, Trent, I want to make sure that the record is very clear uh, that I, I, I really want to thank you uh, for two reasons. Um, the, the, the first is for the debate that you uh, graciously hosted at Catholic Answers almost a year ago where we debated this compatibility thesis on socialism. Can't believe it's been a year. (laughs) Yeah, I know. We're coming up on that. Um, And as I'm sure you realize, you know, I was the nobody rando (laughs) commenting and, and you, uh, you, 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 you platformed me, you gave me uh, a chance to uh, engage with you. And since then I've been on something of a, podcast tour of sorts which never would have happened and and, and to be completely honest and and totally serious uh this show folk phenomenology wouldn't have launched i think without that aftermath and what well i you. well i appreciate sam you're willing to engage people because i mean one of the i mean the reason i wanted to have a debate with you in the first place was i couldn't uh, really find someone who was willing to defend that position in sure. an open debate and the sure. fact that you Ex- one expressed a willingness and you're not you're not a nobody you're an academic you teach at a university <laughs> fair enough so you ticked off uh i mean there are like nobodies who would probably debate me that have an anonymous twitter profile but that's i'm not true. gonna that's true i'm not gonna talk to them that's but you were true. someone who had the credentials and you were willing of all the people who have credentials you were the one willing to do it and so i appreciated that and i've appreciated you've always like when i've seen your interactions online you're willing to talk to people who disagree. Uh, and sure. that to me is a thing that I think is really lacking in the Catholic online sphere. You know, you've got like far left, slight left, slight right, far right, yeah. you know, online. But there's only a few actors amongst all those groups who are willing to talk to people in the other groups, I feel. No, I I, I think I think you're right. And, and uh, I've uh, the show, this 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 folk phenomenology podcast um, was initially kind of subdivided between equal parts of debates and interviews. And one thing I've actually learned is that um, my penchant for the debate, which goes all the way back to my high school uh, experiences and whatnot, um, is probably less important than 
just encounter and talking with people, not necessarily, you know, on agonistic terms. But as you also know, um, I love the agonistic exchange, um, and I know you do too. Um, and, uh, and 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 you're good at it. You know, I, I think I, I think prepping for that last one, I think I watched all up to that point of your debates up to then, and uh, I told a lot of people, I was like, I don't think he's lost one yet. So this is a this is a bad situation I'm getting myself into. Well, I think it's but, uh, I think it's all I think it's always a win when two people come forward. People can hear each of their sides. Sure. Because for me, like when it comes to debates, what's interesting, Sam, is that I don't think debates are the best way to resolve an issue hmm. uh, per per se. I think debates serve their best function is they serve as a gateway for people to learn about the topic being debated. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it um i've thought a great deal about just what debate is and what what its function is i've described it as something of a game that i enjoy playing and i think that um unfortunately the game side of even just rhetoric in general um is often overdetermined in terms of people assume that rhetoric for instance rhetorical claims have like logical capacities well, and, and that's not a hard true and but they have a hard time distinguishing the two that's that's why it's hard it's not like back in the day when people would sit down and listen to a seven-hour lincoln douglas debate you know, oh yeah. yeah yeah but yeah. it's but it's helpful uh to bring it together and also because i mean let's say you give because if you do a, a talk on a thesis mm-hmm. and you just put it on youtube you'll, you'll get a lot of people who agree with you not as many people would disagree sure. debates are a great place like i said to open it up to others and i think i think today's topic will be fun to yeah to no, chat about because there's a multiplicity of views totally so let's just go ahead and jump in the the, the sure. format i want to take here is uh and and oh the the second thing i want to thank you for was for pushing me on the format um i <laughs> i i grew up and cut my teeth on on high school uil tfl nfl uh lincoln douglas debate and I love yeah. that format. It's it, for me, it was a safe, uh, safe haven, um, right. and um, I was reticent to let it go. But several critics, uh, and, and 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 you especially in preparation for this, pushed me to say, Sam, you know, you need to let go of that crutch and of that penchant that you have because you're the only person who likes this. You need to open up these discussions in a more kind of fruitful well, way. Well, here's what I'll tell you about this, though, Sam, is that. I do believe debates serve an important role. Um, I, I also think debates are helpful when you have people who aren't uh, keen to having the dialogue. Mm. Debates put up guardrails to help when you have a conversational partner who isn't great at letting the other person converse. Uh-huh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But I have. But um, after our previous engagement, I, because I, I hadn't engaged you very much, right? Right. Uh, right. I had saw no. This is someone I can converse with. So you, yeah. You've cracked over over the door, uh, whereas for other people, there are some people I'd say, oh, you know, I, I think I might need the guardrails to debate up with, <laughs> with you as an individual, but I, I don't think we'll need that here. Sure, no, no, we don't. And so we're not we're not discuss, we're not uh, debating a, a set resolution or proposition, but uh, I mean, a person who's followed either one of us <laughs> would have to be uh, fairly. Um, they would have to be in a in a unique position to not understand our general stances here and i think this will become more clear so what i'm going to do is i'm going to read sure. out loud pedantically the four questions that i sent you and that we agreed on in advance and sure. then my intuition is we'll just work from them um, uh one by one yeah. um if it's the case that um 
we cover some of them and other ones i'm very happy to concede those and move on if it's the case that this carries on at some length on maybe question one and we just put the other ones off for another time that's fine too so i just i'm reading these for transparency not to you know uh create any kind of traps or anything like that. So question one is, as you may already know, uh, I like to think about terms or labels in political economy historically. This has been, as you know, a subject of some controversy. Uh, I have read in, in your book and also heard in, in some of your podcasts and whatnot, uh, you describe capitalism as beginning in the 14th century in Italy. Uh, this pre-industrial account of capitalism is new to me. Uh, could you describe that to me in some detail? So that's the first question, which is a historical question. The second question is following from this history, I'm also aware that there are presently competing and even incommensurable, uh, so um, things that don't measure up against each other, schools of capitalism. Uh, for example, the Austrian school and the Chicago school, and there's gads of other ones. Within this variety of theories of capitalism, uh, which one do you identify with and how would you summarize its most important features to you? I think in your book you call this moral capitalism, but you know I'll let you answer that. Sure. Um, question three is, as you know, capitalism has been a subject of critique uh, throughout all of Catholic social teaching from Pope Leo the 13th encyclical, Rerum Novarum, in 1891 to Pope Francis's most recent encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, of last year. Now, the terminology shifts at times, uh, but it seems to be a stable critical teaching. I would go as far as to suggest that the church's position can be understood as a particular form of anti-capitalism. Uh, what would you say about that? So that's the third one. That kind of takes us from the more uh, broad, historical, uh, you might say secular discussions of political mm -hmm. economy into the more questions of compatibility that we talked sure. about and the other one. And then the final one is very kind of philosophical. Um, I tend to think of political economy as fundamentally being about the maximal promotion of human flourishing. This is kind of a my Aristotelianism, I suppose. <laughs> uh, how does your account of and support for capitalism promote that um, to a higher degree than others? And by others, I mean competing ideologies or systems, or in here you can even import some of the things I've supported as well in the realms of politics and economy. So that's the fourth question. So those are the four questions. I wonder if we can start with the history one, which is really sure. just kind of, um, I have some doubts, doubts and misgivings about your story of capitalism. So maybe you can tell the story on your terms and then I can ask you some questions about it or even maybe propose my version of the story as I would see it. Sure. So, uh, and of course, it's going to be difficult as we continue through because the meaning of terms is going to be very important. And terms mean different things to different people. Uh, capital, the term capitalism did not arise amongst defenders of capitalism. It's a term that came from, was developed by critics like Karl Marx. So he himself didn't use the term capitalism. He used the term capital to describe uh, means of production or things that are combined with labor power to to generate wealth so i mean uh but if we think of capitalism as uh and so it's a term i don't prefer because it's a critic's term but something you know related to free markets the idea of uh private individuals and firms being the typical entities that own means of production that combine capital and capital really is just money whether it's in the form of a liquid asset or an intellectual property or something like a factory or land combining that with labor to uh, create goods and services 
then through through trade and commercial transactions, you generate wealth uh, and grow an economy. Um, so when I would look at the growth of capitalism at like a super bird's eye view would be, you know, we have the fall of the Roman Empire in the fifth century. Uh, we go from most people, either a aristocratic class and a slavery class to uh, serfdom. So instead of slaves, serfs are tied to the land. Uh, but most wealth really exists in that which is transferred like gold and silver from areas or just owning land in general. By around the seventh century, you start to get merchants that are traveling to fairs. These medieval fairs were ways to, for a lot of people, well, for merchant classes to start to generate income. But you didn't generate a lot. You do traveling through fairs as a merchant. You weren't going to rival a king uh, doing doing it that way. Uh, but then as you continue on, you get into the latter part of the Middle Ages. Uh, we transition from a traveling merchant class, one that just goes with their goods from village to village and has their money sack with them, that in the 13th and 14th centuries, I would say, especially in Italy, you see the rise of different uh, developments that allow for a sedentary merchant class, for someone who is able to monitor transactions over large distances from you know where they live in venice or something like that and so in doing that you have you know you're taking silk which is cheap in china importing it here selling it in europe where it's expensive and there's a lot of things like double entry bookkeeping uh joint stock companies that are able to spread out the risk of maritime ventures better shipping technologies uh, all of this together creates a growing merchant class that is able to produce enough wealth to reinvest it back into their companies to grow them substantially. And so I would so I would say that's the rise of capitalism, but it's more accurate to call it mercantile capitalism. Mm -hmm. But you're right, as you get to the industrial revolution where you have the specificity of labor and labor-saving devices being created, that's where you get a lot more wealth creation in these uh, urban industrial areas and uh, capitalism really starts starts to cake off and we see the migration from rural to, to urban areas as a result. But um, that, I guess that'd be my bird's eye to, to look at it, how I would see the, the story. Sure. Um, I, I'm not going to dispute a whole lot of that. Maybe I'll just add sort of um, at least what my kind of take on both the term, which I agree the, the term and its history are slightly, um, one might say, disjointed uh, concretely. Um, mm -hmm. And and insofar as, as you would accept or maybe press how my story goes... Uh, mm -hmm. That would affect um, kind of the the pressure point I would apply to to to, to your story because um, my sense of the idea of capitalism or I, con capitalism as a concept is um, I don't disagree that as a word or a kind of expression it emerges in the 19th century in particular in kind of Marxian or primarily Marxist uh, critiques of of, of capital. Um, and, the, and the real term that really comes up in Marx is the capitalist. Right. Um, um, as the, almost, the one who owns capital. Exactly, the one who owns capital. And, and, and capital emerges as sort of a particular um, metabolism of value that he describes in the early parts of, of Capital, Volume 1. Sure. But I think that uh, his uh, he's in discussion there, though, and, and I would say actually in fairly constructive discussion, critical but constructive discussion, with Adam Smith, John Locke, uh, mm -hmm. Ricardo, uh, a, a contemporary of his, John Stuart Mill, um, right. and um, 
And so for me, the discussion, both in Marx and in Smith, who I know ideologically put on different sides, but the discussion and the discourse... They, they, they overlap sometimes, though. It's not do. like they're polar, oh, they're not no, polar they're abs- opposites. Absolutely, yeah. especially if you add Adam Smith's uh, lectures, his morals, um, uh, the moral sentiments um, right. uh, to his Wealth of Nations account. Mm-hmm. I think actually there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of overlap there, and I, I know some Smithian, uh, good some good Smithian uh, of, of philosophers who have uh, really emphasized this, and I and I agree with them. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the the reason I raise it though is is my understanding is that really capitalism, as we tend to talk about it, is a species of economic liberalism that mm-hmm. emerges out of, in particular, Locke, uh, but also Smith's account of. Uh, the right to private property, uh, private mm-hmm. ownership, and the emergence from that th- kind of liberal theory of a kind of, uh, uh, well, its implications for political economy, right? Um, and so that would, for me, be like, I, I would, again, I don't like putting dates on things because it's kind of arbitrary, but I would put 1776 <laughs> as my date, um, which would which is the, the, the publication of Wealth of Nations. Um, right, and, and I would say that's a huge turning point in the understanding of markets. Uh, though I, what I would say, though, is when you have um, Smith and what he's arguing about, I think it's important for people to remember that, that Adam Smith was not an economist, per se. No, no, he was he's a moral, a moral he was, philosopher. Yeah. yeah, he was a moral philosopher. Yeah. But moral philosophy covers a lot of grounds, including the question, what does it mean for a nation to be wealthy? And Smith is really challenging the idea that a nation is not, you can't determine a nation's wealth based on how much gold is in the king's vault. The nation's wealth is based on what is the standard of living of the people who live in that nation and what it, what improves their standard of living. And so I think Smith had very keen insights about what happens when you encourage voluntary exchange among people and that markets exist and have an indirect function to promote well-being, even though everybody is acting in their own interest, and sure. so I mean that's invisible hand and all that stuff. But yeah, yeah. Uh, and but he has his criticisms hand, too. Yeah, and, and invisible hand actually doesn't come up in Wealth of Nations, which is interesting because it's one of yeah. the more um, uh, kicked horses of the of, of, of Smithian uh, capitalism. Right. Um, other other thing I would say, which I, uh, just to clarify, is that like you know in 1776, economics hasn't really been invented yet. Social science sure. kind of hasn't really emerged yet. So the domain of moral philosophy, uh, in particular, the domain of moral philosophy where kind of the question of ethics is much more classical. How should I live? How should mm-hmm. we live as a society? Politics emerging from there. Economy or commerce or whatever being one of the questions one asks in politics. These are more or less, I would say, natural questions asked, but you're absolutely right that they occur within the um, domain of, of philosophical argumentation. Right. Um, now, maybe you can see now or appreciate a bit why a mercantilist account of capitalism, for me, just kind of, um, it, it, uh, it, it, it seems to um, give a kind of pre-developmental account of an entity in a way that loses some of the sharpness of the, of, of the entity, as I understand it, given my 1776 story. Now, there's another story, though, that I think is also important in this discourse. And so we have Smith, we have Marx. But in 1905, you know, Max Weber writes kind of a revisionist account of of capitalism and um, uh, 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 the the Protestant ethic on on the spirit of capitalism. 
and yes. his his focus in 1905, which I always find super interesting, is is a little is quite a bit different. So Marx and Smith, Ricardo, Locke, like Mill, they're all pretty much working within a kind of British, continental European set of cues, where um, Northern European, Northern European, yes, absolutely, uh, Northern European set of views. Which is why you can also see my kind of Italy's a little too Mediterranean for my sensibilities here when we're talking about this geographically, geopolitically. But Weber really looks towards the Dutch and he tells a slightly different story, which is inflected with the rise of uh, Calvinism and Protestantism. Yes. And he supplies this kind of, I think, uh, in some ways, far slipperier and more ideologically dispersed because it's built upon a kind of a religious account uh, for capitalism. Right. So Weber's thesis uh, is that in predominantly Catholic countries of Southern Europe, Mm -hmm. you demonstrate one's piety sacramentally. You Mm -hmm. go to mass, you pray your rosary. Mm -hmm. You know, we're Catholic. We we have all these sacramental ways to demonstrate one's piety. Right. But uh, I remember, but in Calvinism, you don't. Um, you, you have, um, uh, when you, well, for example, I, when I was in Geneva, uh, with my wife many years ago, we visited Calvin's cathedral and okay. it is a barren place. No <laughs> yeah, art, yeah. no yeah. iconography. Sure. The chair he sat in, they, here's Calvin's chair <laughs> and it's just this rickety wooden chair. There's mm-hmm. no pomp and circus because cause the, the reformers abhorred the, those Catholic elements. So ironically sure. in Geneva, there are four statues of the reformers. So I think they'd be spinning in their graves <laughs> yeah, to know what they, were, what they were turned into. Sure. Uh, so yeah, so Weber says, okay, but how do I know that I'm part of the elect? How do I know that I'm saved? Uh, well, if I'm, if I'm working and I'm investing and I'm becoming prosperous, uh, that's the way I demonstrate that I'm saved because I don't have sacramental ways to demonstrate it. Sure. Uh, but I think a lot of scholars since then have been critical of Weber's thesis historically. They, they don't think it's necessarily panned out. Sure, uh, there, sure. There's one, and we're not entirely sure why this is, but one reason, because it's trying to explain, okay, why did industrial capital, because your, your thesis is like, wait, Trent, you're telling me it started with Venetian merchants in the 14th century, but we all agree it really booms in Northern Europe several centuries later. Well, there's one thesis, Sam, that okay. uh, colder climates tend to produce more wealth and gross domestic product than warmer ones. I've, it's interesting. I've heard lots you, of these temperamental accounts of the climates. I, yeah. Um, they're not entirely. They're not entirely sure why, but it, <laughs> so there's this idea that if you look all around the world, when you look at poorer and richer countries, I mean, well, look at you know Sweden and Finland and compare them to Italy and Greece. Sure, sure. You know, sure. it's um, and so people have different theories. Maybe it's frankly, uh, it's harder to work a long time in warmer climates. You're more likely to take a siesta, and so your your output is less. I used in the to colder- think that until I lived in North Dakota. Right. But then, but then it's like, so then people argue in the colder climates, people huddle in their, by their boilers and just work to stay yeah, warm. Yeah. And it, there's a lot of difference. So I, so I, I agree it, it's a multifaceted approach and, and it's an interesting question. But I think even you would agree that 
nothing is created ex nihilo. Like no, there's, there's no. going to be no, no, no. variants of it. And so I would agree with you that that's why I give it the label like mercantile capitalism because it still involves trying to create capital through long distance trade sure. versus uh, isolated industry. Yeah. Things like well, that. what I wanted to do were two things and you and you've done me the favor of kind of uh, deducing the critique uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> from the story, sure. which, you, which you're good at. And but, but just to show my motivations, um, I didn't want to pull a, your, I don't like your story and not be willing to give my story. I feel like in the past, sure. one of my um, weaknesses has been giving an impression to people that I not I don't have any receipts in my pocket that I'm willing to show. So my story mm-hmm. would be the 1776, 1873, 1905 version. Uh, I, like you, favor the economic liberalism story probably more than the Weberian, looser, more speculative stuff, just because I don't understand it as, as well. Sure. Um, yeah, the only thing that I would... Um and there, and it's true that a lot of the the growth and development of uh, capital, you know, free market capitalist environments is more in Protestantism than Catholicism. I think some people can get the misinterpretation. I mean, the problem is there is a long, you know, they have long-standing Catholic understanding of jurisprudence and canon law and theology related to usury and markets sure. that may have slowed the development of of business ventures in the Catholic world um, until in the nineteenth century. When you had the, I forget which which pope it was who kind of backed off on confessors requiring uh, bankers to, to spell out the nature of their loans to make sure. sure they had the right titles to them. But even starting in the 16th century, there's an interesting school of thought uh, that comes from people like Francisco Suarez and others, mm. the school of Salamanca, these Spanish yeah, yeah. theologians yeah. that really it's it's kind of like proto-Smithian work going oh, even in like the 1500s. I, I agree. And in fact, uh, um, I'm aware of some uh, Catholic scholars. And just to be really clear, Trent, um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to try and pull a Vibarian move to turn you into a Protestant because you want to right. be a Catholic. So just, <laughs> we, can, we can clean that off the table. That's not yeah, my, sure. I'm not sure. Eugene McCare or, you know, that's not my move. Um, sure. But uh, but the Aquinas's account of the Dominus Sui mm-hmm. um, is uh, uh, so John Crosby writes about this in, in his in his book on the selfhood of the human person. Oh, that um, was my that was the first book I read at Franciscan, my very yeah. first class. Well, yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> I'm, I consider myself still philosophically a personalist, so that's an important book. And that and in many yeah. ways, that idea of the Dominus Sui, I have uh, uh, argued. Uh, predates the sort of Lockean autonomous account of the individual and liberalism, mm. you know, by sure. by many things. So I'm not I'm not, I'm not trying to say, and I would I would hate to imply that that there that things occur ex nihilo. I do think where we put our emphases within certain historical accounts matters, and the reason. And now I'll make my kind of more critical point. The sure. reason I'm probably uh, not willing to accept ex- accept under the kind of circumstances we have here with a lot of explanation, out of hand, this account of mercantile capitalism as a sort of origin story for capitalism is that most of the discussions about capitalism uh, yeah. that are central to the 20th century, both within the church and otherwise, are really laser focused on industrial capitalism. And so it seems to me to be a, a kind of a, a problem of emphasis to introduce to someone 
a, a form of something that really predates the thing that is really under discussion because to me it kind of pulls their eye away from the real problems of labor such as the working day such as child labor such as unionization sure. such as all those things and instead it places them in this kind of more innocent kind of romantic account and, and that's where I that's where my critique really emerges well, th- right then then I think uh the way I look at it is first, uh, when it comes to the story you're telling, sure. you're pl- placing it in the 18th century. You're pl- you're placing it among thinkers, That's whereas I- I'm placing it among actors. So I think in order to have a comprehensive account, you'd have to say, here are the actors that are promoting these capitalist practices. Uh, why are they engaging in certain behavior rather than other behavior? Number two, I might bring up to say, I think you're, the critique you make that, yeah, if you just dwell upon Venetian mercantile capitalism, it starts to gloss over the, the abuses and the abuses that do occur. And this will come up when we talk about the, the church's anti-capitalism, sure, sure, sure. the abuses in the system. Uh, you're like, well, f- focus on the correct era. I would say that that mindset can also go against those who are anti-capitalist because I would say we're no longer in an industrial era. We're in an information era. Fair enough. Uh, that, yeah. that in, because, you know, 100 years ago, let's say 120 years ago, beginning of the 20th century, about 40% of jobs were in mining, farming, uh, or construction, was, you know, manufacturing. And only 3% of jobs were in information services. Sure. Today, that's the plurality of mm-hmm. them. So, so it, it, those other jobs do exist, but... It is, it is a lot different. doesn't mean the abuses have stopped. Human beings will always have abuses. But I think you're right to keep on both sides, be aware of the era you're in. Yeah, and actually there's some, I think there's some really good critique. So like the whole, in, uh, the neologism that around the 80s gets starting being used by like David Harvey and others, uh, neoliberalism, which mm-hmm. for them is this kind of refresher term of a kind of liberalism that would have been unimaginable and it's kind of... Pr- you know, Rawlsian, Millian, uh, Smithian, you know, uh, uh, accounts before. So I, I think there's a lot of credibility to to that kind of later stage critique. To, to zero in here, as we move to the second question, uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to me, the, the most compelling uh, um, accounts of, of, of capitalism, which are critical, um, occur within Marx's analysis of the working day within volume one of Capital, where uh-huh. he goes through... Um, uh, basically the invention of like shift work. And he kind of mm-hmm. says like, you know, days are 24 hours and weeks are seven days a week and 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 our bodies live for so long and, and whenever we're young and we're eight years old and seven years old, we have different bodies than we have when we're 17 or we're 24 or we're 30. And of course, life expectancy in the 19th century was, was short. Um, and so he kind of adds this kind of, this this temporal feature of time to analyze the working day and to show how uh, value or this idea of surplus value that, that he theorizes, how it comes oftentimes at the expense of vulnerable people, in particular children, in particular people who haven't had enough sleep or stuff like that. And so that to me is actually uh, a really concrete place because he's often talking about British factories and right. the House of Commons law, uh, laws that are on the floor and being discussed and whatnot. And so like that would be one area that I would say, for instance, uh, capitalists, anti-capitalists, whatever, um, 
I see that as really the front and center of what we would call labor politics, right? Um, well, I, I think we all agree. I mean, we're, we're everyone's in agree. It's kind of like when we talk about what do we do about poverty. It's very rare to find someone who's just a pure social Darwinist. It's like they'll just let the poor uh, die off. It's I like wish everyone you kinda, were right. I, <laughs> well, you and I, I don't sp- disagree about this, but right, yeah. I, we have to be careful about spending t- too much time on the on the internet too. Sometimes the and I don't even know if people, what they say on there, they always believe. But when you talk to people of, of goodwill, regular people, there are some callous attitudes towards the poor. But I think in general, people agree with the statement, we ought to reduce poverty. We ought to improve working conditions. Where we will disagree is on the prudential matter of how do we go about and sure, do that? Sure, and sure. so, and I think that when you read Marx and Engels and their critiques of uh, industrial capitalism in Manchester, England, uh, they do describe some frightful working conditions. The same with Upton Sinclair's uh, The Jungle, which is not something you ought to eat after you have lunch. Sure, um, sure. But at, at the same time, I, I think what we have to understand that progress in this, these areas is something uh, slow and, and gradual. And I think Marx and Engels really peddled kind of a, a myth about the idea that rural life prior to the Industrial Revolution was was better. When we've done modern sociological surveys looking back of the rampant poverty, famine, people were willing to risk these conditions just to um, for better livelihoods. Like my kids, for example, right now, they're listening to um, Laura Ingalls Wilder, sure. Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and beautiful stories to listen to. But it's so interesting how they talk about farm life and just how terrible it is. Yeah, totally. And the desire, right, the the desire, not only that it's with farm life, (coughs) you have farm life and industrial life, both involve long hours, but like farm life, it's so precarious that the crop could just fail on you. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the industry, you have usually... And when the rules are being played, you get your you get your wage, you get your this. Now, obviously, wage theft is a, is a crime. Everyone uh, agrees with that. But then, so when we look at it, though, like for me, I would see as markets develop, conditions do improve. Like in 1830, manufacturing workers were pull, were doing about 70 hours a week. By 1930, that had dropped to about that had dropped to 40 hours. Now, people have said should it drop more. One theory as to why it hasn't gone down more is that work is valuable enough. People are willing to put in 40 hours a week for the return that comes from it. So I, so for me, as someone who would defend markets, I think that these are good goals. Sure. When we allow the increase of the market, we do see a natural progression towards better working conditions so that we see that today in the global south, there are people who labor under difficult conditions like there were in Manchester, England 150 years ago, the goal is, do we get them on the same trajectory so they're eventually near where where we are or 1930s America, you know, or things like that? Right. I mean, but but to be clear, and I and I, I agree with with most of that with with maybe just added caveats like like the, the working day hasn't been reduced. I would say naturally it's been reduced in many cases through um, labor politics, right? Advocacy uh, for for it uh, for better working conditions. But the, sure. the, the maybe the key distinction, though, um, getting back to the kind of historical question, is that mm-hmm. when we're talking about mercantilism, we're really not talking about wage labor. Whereas when we're talking about industrial capitalism, we're talking about wage labor, and in some sense, we're talking about a particular. Um, modern invention of a form of labor. Well, I, I mean, there's labor. more. There, it's it's a a larger increase in wage labor because you only have so many sailors and camel guides on these trading expeditions. I mean, the mercantile capitalists in their books had to 
pay laborers and, and, and do this kind of stuff. But, but I agree with you that uh, creating a system, and this was, you go to, and this is where one, maybe one day we'll have a distributist with us. That, that I don't, well, I don't really want to argue with distributists, to be honest. I, I, well, Their sense of gets, history is way more anachronistic than what we're doing here. Yeah, it is. Because, well, like, the critique, uh, but it reminds you of, of, like, Chesterton. Sure, sure. That okay. his, his, his critique of capitalism, ironically enough, is that it took fathers out of the home. Yeah, yeah. You know, you didn't have your yeah, workshop, yeah. and yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. you made all your stuff. And so a lot of distributists, we know, kind of long for a, or return to that, and I, I would tell them, "Well, you're, you remember your rose-colored glasses. Running a business ain't easy." Yeah, no, we're we're, uh, we're we're agreed on this. I, I I find I just find that you know Chesterton and Belloc are great whenever you're you know 19 or something, but you have to grow so, up. So, well, uh, yeah. So when but looking at that, this idea of when you talk about wage labor, uh, and I think that you know throughout most of human history. Uh, people were, in order to live and su- survive in society, you had to be about 90% self-sufficient. You, you had a farm, mm-hmm. you created your own clothes and goods, and then you engaged in minimal trade with others for the stuff you couldn't make. Sure. Uh, whereas the rise of markets and capitalism has created a class where you and I now, we're, we're what, like 15% self-sufficient? Yeah, you know, we, I, I, we're, we're highly interdependent, but I think that's a good thing. That's something the Pope sure, have actually sure, said sure. is a virtue in the human community. Oh, but but in, in doing that, we trade our self-sufficiency for working and being sufficient upon a wage we receive. And then that does, there are ethical issues that come up yeah. in the reception dispensation yeah. of wages. I mean, so like if I was going to retrofit your... Um, your your historical account of capitalism. I would say it would be more interesting if an account of capital of mercantile capitalism focused on the wage earners working under the the merchants, right? Like sure. that would be a very different story. And in some sense, it's kind of almost in, exciting for me to to wonder if it analogizes to industrial capitalism because they're the entities to me make sense. The problem I have with the Mm-hmm. Um, an over-reliance on a kind of antecedent account of, of, of industrial capitalism and mercantilism is that the uh, the merchant entity doesn't really compare to the worker or laborer in the industrial analogy. Like those just things don't logically line up to me. Sure. But for me, it, it creates important institutions whose role we'll understand later. For example, it was through mercantile capitalists that the first uh, uh, modern banking systems really arose because what you had uh, before, it's like, well, okay, when you're trying to engage in this long distance trade, trying to pay somebody with gold coins, it's like, oh, it's, I mean, it's such a risk to send them by ship or sure, by caravan. Sure. But if you had a, net, a network of institutions that have gold and you can write out uh, bills of pay, and this is where we see in the late 14th century, this coming up a lot. Uh, now you have an ability to engage in these trades and the risk is minimized so much to, you know, to, in order to, to allow for it. And so then now when we have wage laborers, we think, you know, you get a wage, what do you do with it? Uh, banks or credit unions are are vital to allow for the secure transfer of funds and storage of funds to be able to use in this in this more modern economy that will date back more to the mercantile era. Sure. Okay. No, that's good. Um, I feel pretty good about. Um like I think we've, on the one hand, amplified the picture of of capitalism. Um, sure. I think I don't think we've been loosey goosey about our words or our language or the language of capitalism. I think there's some sophistication involved, but 
Hopefully, no mm-hmm. one is going to yell at you or me about definitions here. Oh, um, uh, they they will because <laughs> you and I are not. I mean, I'm not a professional historian or economist. That's one thing that's hard to apply our Catholic principles. One has to be cognizant of limitations, but still feel able to speak on certain subjects. Yeah, sure. You know? I mean, I just think um, there are obviously different points of emphasis. We, we we could have, for instance, just focus on the theoretical account of Wealth of Nations. And you, I think, usefully pressed me to, no, let's talk about something that has concreteness to it. And that's why I kind of wanted to talk about it. But I do think yeah. Smith is, he is artful in his insights, uh, oh, yeah. including on his criticisms of capitalism. For example, that uh, merchants will want to, con- uh, uh, merchants will want to conspire together to keep wages low. Mm-hmm. That, I think that the same as we're moving forward for me, when it comes to understanding what economic system we use in general. Sure. And what I have a hard time with in the Marxist viewpoint is looking at it as uh, you have the the worker and owner, and the owner exploits the worker. Uh, to me, it's too simplistic. I believe that because of the human sinful condition, everybody wants to exploit everybody, uh, and so I don't. That's I don't think close that that to is Marx, though. Honestly, so Marx, whenever he talks about the real concrete danger to the proletariat it's usually the lumpen proletariat it's rarely the cat like structurally speaking surplus value empties out into the capitalist pocket yeah that's true structurally but when he's getting into the the real nitty-gritty i'll just put a pin i don't agree with marx's surplus value but that might be as i'm just putting my pin there all right take that down the line i mean (laughs) do we want to get to the n and the mcm's formula thing here i mean i'm okay with that um well let's let's um Let's focus. My, my point I just wanted to make sure. simple for people sure. to follow is owners would love to have workers work and not pay them. And workers would love to get paid and not work. Yeah, that's yeah, the, yeah. that's yeah, a natural yeah. human instinct. And so when you have a system of voluntary interaction where uh, you can't be forced to buy or sell or pay others, then you have to uh, put forward these incentives. And, and from that, uh, it's like um, Smith gives the example of the, the butcher who'd love to sell you rotten meat. He'd love to sell you rotten meat for $100, uh, but, he, but in a free market, he can't do that. Uh, he has to he has to make it so that the exchange values both of you. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, of course, there's going to be systems where people are in unusual or interesting historical circumstances where exploitation occurs. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, the market helps to weed that kind of thing. Sure. Out. Maybe instead of uh, focusing on this uh, surplus theory of value, which uh, is a little bit in the weeds. Wh- what about the, the the Marxist account of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs? sort of mantra because um, I find that a very uncontroversial uh, uh, Marxian uh, line well it for me it depends it even captures uh, kind of what you were saying earlier I would say to me it would uh, it would depend on what the system is describing uh, like in our house you know uh, I don't expect my six-year-old to do as many chores as I do from each according to his abilities that's right and yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm not gonna and I'm not gonna pay my six-year-old uh, 50 bucks for taking out the trash. He doesn't need that to each according to his needs. So that's a very paternal and familial uh, thing. Mm-hmm. When it gets extrapolated to the state mm-hmm. where my, uh, my recompense for working is just that which what I need to survive, to me, uh, slavery essentially is, uh, the, is when you are forced to work 
and your compensation is only that which you need to survive. So it, se- it would seem like a kind of slavery if it's imposed from a top-down governmental structure. Uh, okay. Um, I mean, it, it was... Um, yeah, I think the... I mean, so one thing I, I, to mention as well, historically, mm-hmm. here... Yeah is that if we do focus on industrial capitalism, another mm-hmm. reason I think it's important is that obviously history it and political history and geopolitical history uh, and periodization matters, that mm-hmm. when we focus on the 19th century and even on the 18th, we're well within the grasp of this big era called modernity. And within sure. that big era called modernity, we have these large-scale things called colonialism, a part of colonialism mm-hmm. involves, of course, the transatlantic slave trade, shadow slavery, so on and so forth. Sure, um, and, I, and I would say that that is that is antithetical to the idea of a of a free market. To be uh, obviously, people have to be free to ac- accept goods and services or reject work, and sl- and and slavery is is completely incompatible with that. Yeah, I mean. But of course, you know, like like Marx is looking a lot, especially like when he's tracking the price of cotton. He's looking a lot aclo- across the Atlantic, and he's noting, mm-hmm. for instance, one of his accounts of surplus value. Like the most extreme version is like, well, if you get people and you don't pay them, you get a lot of surplus value out of that because you you don't have a wage to give. Um, well, well, I well I I wouldn't use Marx's terms. I would just say your overhead is a lot less. Uh, well, that's kind of what surplus value is. Really? Well, surplus value from, I guess we're just, gonna, I guess we're, we're there. Okay. This. All right. It, it, so, I mean, surplus value is Marx's idea that, uh, the, he's trying to figure out, and this is something, you know, obviously economists try to figure out is what gives a good it's, it's value. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so you, you have the, the, the costs of the raw goods for creating something. And then, um, I was actually watching a, a video at the Gravel Institute, um, uh, that was uh, expanding on this from the point of view that you'd be defending. And the example they used was, look, uh, Herschel has uh, a burger stand and he pays $1,000 for the supplies. And then you work at Herschel's burger stand and you sell burgers. And Herschel makes, or it's Harold, sorry. Harold makes okay. $3,000. Yeah. That's $2,000 uh, of surplus value. And he, he pays you, but he never pays you quite enough because he needs his profits. And this, I think that you know, Mark's trying to say, you know, okay, here is the labor that went into creating this thing that may give its its value. Um, but then the owner sells the thing, whether it's a burger or a pair of shoes, for more than that. And so Marx has reached the conclusion that the extra value had to be taken from the worker. And I would just disagree because I fundamentally disagree with their views, which also goes back to Aquinas when he talks about just price. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, the value of a good or service lies primarily in the desire that other people have for it. Hmm. And so when, like in Harold's account, it was not the burger worker who made $2,000 there. The money that's created is from a, a variety of things. The fact that somebody can go into a store, look at a nice menu, follow marketing, know that the burger shop has uh, entered into government regulations and uh, all of these other things. And so so for me, the the extra money that that is created, the profit, uh, there is a justification for the owner to be able to receive that because the owner took on entrepreneurial risks that the worker that the worker didn't, mm-hmm. and so w- in trying to um, justify all that, that, so so that's one there for the, the the profit. But this idea of surplus or that really goes back to Marx's labor theory of value. 
I just think that that's false uh, because you could have for this is an example I've given before. You could have two houses that have identical costs for their construction. Uh, one just happens to be painted pink and the other's painted white, mm -hmm. uh, but they're going to be worth different because people value them differently. Sure. So uh, that that's where I think there's, there's you're going to have a big headache and under is the alternate that undercuts Marx's labor and surplus theory of value. Yeah. I mean, the sense of his surplus theory of value that I that I understand um, is not really it's it's a descriptive account of how is it the case um, that things that are exchanged on a basis of relative value that there's like that a third entity enters into that Be, because my, my, and my answer to that is because when people in a free exchange it is a win-win scenario value is created in that people have what they desired there's i believe this gentleman's name is kyle mcdonald it's a there is a story online he did this back in the mid-2000s called the red paper clip Mm -hmm. And what he did was, this is, uh, this is, I ended up in Canada, actually. So it's okay. part of your Canadian folklore. <laughs> uh, looked up the one red paperclip. Over the course of a year, he, he started with one red paperclip and through a series of about 14 trades, ended with a two-story farmhouse. So he trades the paperclip for a pen, the pen for a doorknob, the doorknob for uh, another thing. And then, it, and then the, the value, it keeps increasing. But I would think under Marx's view of the relative value in trade, it would seem like McDonald had to have stolen that farmhouse because a paperclip is worth less. But in all of those trades, everybody was benefited and value was created from the free exchange between people. So that's that's where I, I would I would have a counter to, to Marx there on some of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not entirely sure if that thought experiment sort of so like the first section of Das Kapital of Volume One mm -hmm. is on value. And his opening right. question actually has nothing to do with economics. It's just what in the world is value, and and how is it the case that value, like 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 it's almost like a meta axiology. It's like a, a, a asking the question basically what is value, and, right? And out of that emerges this account of well, what will become capital, which will become money, right? Um, and his kind of the the story he tells, which is super abstract for someone who's supposed to be a historical materialist. There's no history and there's no materialism, <laughs> and the yeah, first right. you know 100, 200, 300 pages of Capital. He very carefully suggests that um, that exchange uh, between sort of equivalent things makes sense. And that whenever exchanges between equivalents becomes exchanges between non-equivalents, that there's something is happening and that here we have an emergence of a different kind of value than a sort right. of equivalent exchange. And it's that kind of tick or that jump in mm -hmm. equivalent exchanges that he tries to analyze. And you're right that later down the road, he puts this to work in favor of an anti-capitalist, of a critique of right. capitalists. But in the early parts of his analysis, mm -hmm. I right. think his descriptive uh, uh, sense is that whenever I hand you uh, a chicken, because you don't have any chickens, and you hand me a loaf of bread because I don't have any wheat, uh, simplistic as this is, so it's like a Catan. Well, right. That, well, that, well, that's the that's the first economy, bartering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Barter. exactly. I mean, that's going on for thousands of years. Exactly. And he works himself kind of. He says, and then this becomes sort of 
both in some sense sophisticated, but in other cases complicated from a philosophical point of view because we can kind of understand intuitively what the value, what the meaning of value is in the context of trade and bartering. But then we have these trades where it's not just equivalent exchanges. There's uh, There are other entities. What is that? And out of that comes this descriptive account of surplus value, which, as you noted, he, he, he turns into a hammer, which he uses later. Yeah. And I think for me, once again, my critique of Marx would be that he thinks that value is something like a, a metaphysical entity within the object or the service itself. Whereas I would say that value is actually something that we have that is a disposition towards particular goods or services. Hmm. And so that would, so for example, that would explain why a good or a service its value can radically change based on the behavior of other, sure. other individuals. I mean, there was, you know, that, that and, I mean, that's that's anything. It's like, well, I would really love, um, you know, how much something is like a chicken may not be worth as much to me if I already have a whole pen of them in the back. Uh, well, anything our value. So, for example, like if I ask you the question, what is more valuable, a bottle of water or a Picasso painting? Normally, we would say a Picasso painting, which is ironic, though, because Marx and others would try to say that value comes from satisfying our needs and other things like that. Whereas a Picasso painting, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy our needs. It, what makes, and it, you might say, oh, well, it's cause it's rare. Well, there's a lot of other rare paintings out there. Nobody wants cause they're garbage. Mm. It's also valuable just because lots of people want the Picasso. But if I was lost in the desert yeah. and I found a, a trunk and I opened it up and it was Picasso paintings instead of water, I'd be really disappointed. Mm. So it, so I, for me, value is, is relies on the disposition of the individuals involved in these exchanges, and that explains its 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 dynamism, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so, I think a lot of that makes sense. I I just think sometimes Marx is a maybe a maybe it's because he wrote so much on it took him so long, and he ended up saying things later down the road using some concepts earlier. But you right. know, commodity exchange because he really doesn't talk about goods and services at all. And this is, I think, a good. Yeah, it's mostly about Marx. commodities. It's about commodities, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, sure. And I think there's a there's a, just like the critique you make you made earlier that you know we don't live in an industrial economy. How can we understand? Um, uh, how can we critique capitalism, uh, or industrial capitalism, uh, for today? Whenever today's economy is vastly different, you know, I in the same sense I agree with that. Um, sure. You know, Marx isn't really talking about goods and services. He's talking about commodities. And the thing that about commodities that's important is that they can be accumulated and that right. they can build up. And he t he talks a lot about accumulations as the kinds of surplus, like the effects of surplus value. So, so one proof for surplus sure. value would be insofar as value through commodity can become accumulated and then right. over time, people could have accumulations of commod uh, of value through commodities that other right. people don't have. This is mm -hmm. kind of like a uh, like a you know, getting caught red-handed with with at least a descriptive understanding of surplus value, right? Yeah, but for me, I wouldn't. To me, as long as whatever it is whether it is a raw commodity like coal or it's a currency of exchange like dollars that are, are given in exchange for coal sale or coal mining, uh, as long as someone has accumulated it and they haven't engaged in fraud, mm. uh, everyone's needs are being met. 
and I fail to see the um, the ethical problems. Now there now there will be people who um, will be able because of exponential growth, either by investing uh, capital or by reinvesting it into industries, their ability to accumulate will be at a faster rate than other people. But just because that is unequal, I, I don't think that that's unjust, as sure. long as, as fraud and other things are not entering into the equation. Yeah. I mean, later on, he talks about this thing called primitive accumulation, which is um, the like th things that you kind of um, forms of value through commodities that you essentially inherit. Um and the ways in which, you know, not all actors are entering into these commodity exchange in zero-sum, one-off things. Over time, this gets really big and complicated. And well, it, sure. in, a, in, a, in an interesting way, actually, it, uh, it does lead to a kind of kings with gold and a kind of, in a weird, almost retrograde way, it can develop into these kinds of massive accumulations that create massive inequalities in terms of well I, I would yeah. also say it allows for the the first time in human history and that's what um pope leo the 13th and rerum navarum his critique of the socialists was that they want to acquire property whether private property uh whether it was given it was taken whether it was acquired through lawful work sure. or the rightful title of inheritance right uh, because you know inheritance is, is anathema to to Marx, but Leo saw that wealth generation within families is a key to lifting people out of poverty. That um, I actually watched a movie on the plane the other day. It was all right. It was called An American Pickle. Okay. With um, uh, it's uh, Seth Rogen. He okay. plays two different characters. Okay. I he think he's from Vancouver. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, he's an it's an absurdist comedy drama okay. about. An, a pickle factory worker who falls into brine and wakes up in 2019, a hundred years later <laughs> okay. and meets his great grandson. I thought it was an okay movie, comedy drama, Sounds horrible. but it's interesting. You know, it's like starts with lowly pickle farmer. He learns his son became uh, a brick factory foreman. His son is an accountant. Now his great grandson is a app developer. Um, and so the ability to be able to acquire um, net worth among individuals and mm -hmm. pass that along to their children, I, I think is is crucial for the development of wealth intergenerationally. That's why I'm not going to go on the weeds in this because that could be another topic for all mm -hmm, of us. Mm -hmm. But I, we find point of agreement that in the early 20th century, when you had things like redlining that prevented blacks from owning homes, sure, absolutely, you've cr you've crippled the ability to amass wealth. That would, if they could have in the 1930s, in 2020, would would make many uh, Black Americans have a very different economic perspective. Oh, absolutely, you know? no, absolutely. So. And then there's interesting um, th this interface between race and class, and, and is is actually really rich. Um, I wonder if I can import one last thing. We're not getting very far, but one thing you said <laughs> that sure. I. I took probably more direct issue than these kind of gradients of things, which was okay. you really seem to imply, at least rhetorically, that mm -hmm. the extension of uh, lifetime expectancy, infant mortality rates, and these things yeah. was over time on a kind of seek, because uh, obviously they've risen. I mean, they doubled the last century. No one can dispute that, right? Um, right, yeah. You kind of seem to imply that there were that this was almost causally related to the emergence of of capitalism or capitalist societies and and i wondered mm -hmm. like 
is that true? Because my understanding is that like the history of immuniza- immunizations, modern medicine, and all these things is way more complicated than an economic history. Right, but I think also it's not just the development of uh, things like vaccines or things like that as a whole that has brought down um, infant mortality rates, things like that, because we saw uh, big declines in that in the 19th and early 20th centuries before we had uh, the development of antibiotics and uh, regimented immunizations. To me, it seems very clear that what uh, caused the surge in human population growth uh, over the past few centuries was uh, more reliable and dependable access to the basic necessities of life. And we can also compare this to areas around the world that open themselves up to market economies and transition away from this kind of extreme poverty. Uh, like you, see, you have East Asia, for example, like in the mid 20th century, it's like 60% of people there lived in extreme poverty. Nowadays, it's dropped down to about 10%. Uh, when people have uh, just the ability to, to, to have reliable and regular access to the, basic, to the basic needs of life, I think that we can credit that to the fact that capitalism has created uh, efficient food supply lines, efficient distribution and communication systems that has brought about uh, something that had never been seen in the world before. And I'm very skeptical of any other alternative uh, explanation for that. I mean, for me, I mean, the alternative explanations you probably have heard of and that are well known are kind of just comparing, you could say, apples to apples, which is, you know, um, income inequality, uh, food scarcity, those kinds of things. That's not, for me, actually, the most persuasive um, Mm -hmm. alternative. To me, the persuasive alternative is the story of how the development of public health systems um, as Pasteur and other breakthroughs in in our understanding of the science of of medicine, uh, as those became adopted in widespread health programs and stuff like that. I think that's where you see a lot of the precipitous drops. But I agree with that. um, Extensions of of human life, right? I would agree with that. But also I would say that the reason that modern medicine has been able to uh, be proliferated and have such a massive impact on the human community is through the rise of uh, private firms and pharmaceutical companies, biotech, uh, other kinds of large multinational corporations. I mean, it was uh, it, it was private in private industry is what got us these mRNA vaccines so quickly. I mean, at the beginning of, the, of 2020, when when China released the genome for COVID-19, Moderna or Pfizer is one of the two. They had developed the vaccine formula two days mm-hmm. after they got the genetic sequence, mm-hmm. uh, and they had they had a vaccine ready in March of 2020, but they couldn't release it because there's all this there's all this government red tape and stuff. So I would I would agree with you on the the public health programs are are helpful. You know, we had them to help inoculate widespread MMR things like I mean, that. We wiped out but to me, polio and smallpox, and you know, we're gonna get past right. a global pandemic, right? I mean, but but to me, without those those private firms operating out of a profit motive, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to to because they sink billions of dollars into the development of these vaccines to reap tens of billions of dollars in revenue, that's what's allowed it to be so efficient and so rapid. I think the details here really matter, right? So like I'm not I'm not going to overextend myself and make some kind of a, a, a 
100% public-based option here. Because, by the mm -hmm. way, if you take it all the way back to, like, who does the idea <laughs> belong to, and it, it belongs to an individual. Like, you know, states don't have ideas because that's not – they don't have a psychology. So, you know, I'm but – the, But the leaders of states do. Yeah, but I, I'm, I'm talking here about, like, like, like Louis Pasteur and, like, people who, who actually – do the work of having the idea that that begins a movement of uh, well, the, of the, revolution. The same thing happened. But an employee at an in R and D at Moderna is uh, do, doing the same. So thing. I'm actually agreeing with you here. Like what I'm trying mm -hmm. to say is that like uh, I don't want to say too much. At the same mm -hmm. time, though, it seems really clear to me that whenever you scale this into the kinds mm. of uh, uh, statistical realities and significances like doubling a, a life expectancy rate or cutting an infant mortality rate in half, that the right. story is, is, is really mixed. And I would say no one, should, no one scores an easy cheap point, whether it's a public option health or a capitalist innovation or like, I think everyone's in it together. This is also kind of talks a bit about my politics, which is I believe in hybrid socialist models with private options and so on and so forth. Yeah, and, I, and yeah. I agree with you that one ought not oversimplify history. History is complicated. But I do think that we have had uh, modern constitutional representative governments for centuries, but these technological advances, some of them are spurned by government uh, research and development that happens a lot in wartime and things like that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we sent, we, you know, we got, we got Tang and other stuff from the space, you know, yeah, space yeah. studies yeah, and, yeah. and, and, but, uh, and other things that are, you know, that we, that we use. The internet. Uh, sure. Yeah. But then, but then we also, but to me, I, I would say to only put it in there sure. and to not see the realm where private firms have, I think, move this at yeah. such a rate and have been willing to take the risks, the entrepreneurial risks to do that. Is well, that's helpful, not, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's not going to be the, that, you know, I, I have no desire to occlude yeah. or get rid of that. How um, about we move into the second one where you tell me what kind of capitalist you are? If, if, you know, what's nice. I didn't know. I didn't know how long we were going. This one's a lot shorter. Okay, good <laughs> for me. This is all, well, I mean, I'm fine going longer on the first one. Yeah. Is, uh, I mean, cause I'm not an economist. Sure. So like I, I, I'm, I'm going to be very, I understand. I'm an apologist. My graduate degrees are in theology, philosophy, and bioethics. Economics is a hobby for mine. That's why when I wrote my book on socialism and Catholicism, I, I had an economist co-author sure, sure, with me. Sure, sure. Um, so your question to me, uh, there is. I, I, I'm similar to my co-author Catherine, who, who teaches economics at CUA. Yeah. There's not really one school I fall into. There, there. If there is a good in a particular economic school uh, within this free market framework, I'm willing to to adopt it, but I'm not going to be some kind of slavish, um, obedient uh, yes man for one of these schools. I know some people who are very um, uh, what's we're looking for here want want to propose you know like me who are very open about talking about the benefits of capitalism. Sure. A lot of them fall in like the Austrian school, yeah, for example, yeah. and like Tom Woods mm -hmm. and, and people like that. And I see a lot of benefit there. And I think my general attitude is that I'm very skeptical of government having the efficiency necessary to accomplish a lot of goods. I used to work for the government at one point, and I saw a lot of a lot of inefficiency. Um, so I, I, I'm more in line with schools that s allow for personal freedom and growth in the market. Yeah. Lesser, but I see the role of of government 
intervention, especially to underserved communities that are, are very small in nature that the market won't reach as well. An example I gave in a previous conversation on this subject was I had a friend of mine who used to teach at a school for children with autism. Um, and so it's hard. There aren't a lot of schools like that because there aren't as many families with the income necessary to pay and start up these schools just for autistic children. So sometimes you might need maybe a government program to to help with something like that. I mean, it, although I, 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 once again, I hesitate to want to have to rely on it. Mm. But also with the schools, yeah, there's things I disagree with. Like I think it was Milton Friedman who said that the only responsibility a company has is to its shareholders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we'll know, and I'm not that, I'm definitely not Ayn Rand objectivist uh, type of, of capitalist to me. We do have moral responsibilities to one another, uh, and so I do believe you know em- employers have responsibilities to their employees, to their consumers, to the uh, community as a whole. Government can have a role in there to make sure that's that's being carried out, uh, but it, it does become complicated in the best way to achieve that because sometimes when we institute policies to do that, our, our best intentions can lead to unintended and unfortunate consequences. Sure. I mean, this question is sort of a, it's kind of double loaded. Um, and mm-hmm. so I'll just come out with this sort of two implications of it. Because I think it's perfectly reasonable to you to say like, look, I'm not an economist. I don't have to accept a kind of a school of thought here or, you know, mm-hmm. I don't have to conference with a particular group of people or whatever. That's not my domain. Um, sure. That's fine. Um, I'll be very blunt. Uh, mm-hmm. Over the last year... I've had a lot of people try to pinhole me on socialism. And my Mm -hmm. frustration has been to say, look, capitalism isn't any easier than socialism to pinhole because there's so many different kinds and no one agrees with each other. And and so I prefer to talk about history. Other people prefer to, you know, what so on and so forth. Other people like to talk about political association. What party do you belong to? So who do you caucus with? Sure. Um, I guess the I'll use the negative question, which gets us a bit off the road. But would you um, accept the view that your mm. approach to capitalism uh, resembles in some ways my approach that you're somewhat familiar with to, to socialism? Uh, I don't think so, because I still think I can give a, a succinct definition of social of uh, sorry, uh, of capitalism and socialism related to who primarily owns means of production. And so amongst like, let's take three schools. You have Austrian, Chicago and, and Keynesian mm-hmm. named after the late economist John Maynard Keynes, who favored more government um uh, intervention in markets to increase stability and and things like that. But I would say, I believe though, I could, uh, to me, the areas I have not fully weighed in on, I would say I'm closer to the Chicago and Austrian school than the Keynesian school, but I don't want to speak out of my expertise. Sure, sure. I would say that the, the problem is for me, the areas I'm not settled on are extremely fine points, like the role of the Federal Reserve or or think which which is there's a difference between the Austrians and the Chicago school on that and things like that. I, I think for me, the differences among capitalists where I don't have a firm view are much finer points, whereas among even a Keynesian, a Chicagoan, uh, neoliberal, uh, Austrian, mm-hmm. we would all agree on the same basic sentiment about the desire to have the proliferation of free markets and to prevent 
ownership of the means of production to be primarily in the state or or, or the community. So I, I do think I have a bit of a tighter description, and that where I haven't weighed in on, they're just much finer points. I see. So it's but it, but it is a question of degree, not of kind, right? Amongst the schools. Yeah, in other words, you would say, like, we don't resemble each other because of degrees, because you have a finer cluster, you might say, uh, that you can make definitions with, whereas you would argue my cluster is a bit maybe uh, wider, more spread out, more dispersed. Uh, wider or, or even more nebulous, possibly. Sure. Like, like, to me, it would be like trying to say, which kind of conservative group in the Catholic Church do I fall into? And I'm kind of a... <laughs> And I'm kind of a maverick in that role. I would say that I would say that I'm a conservative Catholic, however you want to define that sure. term. But it would be hard to place me into any uh, any particular group because uh, amongst all these individuals, I do I do pick and choose. But it'd be very clear on the spectrum, though, in that bubble where where I do end up. Sure. I mean, I think this is so. This is the uh, the passive side of this question, and I just wanted to not be passive aggressive in my use of it. Um, oh, that's fine. The active side of the question is um, is I think the 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 account you gave. Um, I think it, I think it makes sense, but I think it does also raise. Um, uh, a question about like well what are the criteria or what kind of principles govern this dispersal and and my understanding of of, of this spectrum is that it's mm -hmm. really about uh a, a, like you have a kind of anarcho syndicalist capitalist on one side so kind of like libertarianism maximally expressed and mm -hmm. then you have the more kind of classical economic schools of capitalism that understand that there are um numerous factors that have to be addressed in numerous ways including kinds of forms of regulation that and that ironically kind of keep sure markets and more but, open but for me open. yeah but for for me i am generally uh a regulation to me it tends to i give it a presumption of being unnecessary rather than necessary that the regulation is is guilty until proven innocent mm -hmm. when i would see that and working through um, with government, uh, I mean, tr to ever to be at the mercy of the of the government to me is just something that is. I mean, it it just it's just almost very like Kafka esque uh, sometimes when you're trying to deal with them. I mean, for example, our son was born at home because unexpectedly, mm -hmm. and he was born back in September, and we still can't get him a social security card. <laughs> so I didn't even I didn't even I didn't even claim him on my taxes because I didn't want to go through the hassle of sure. trying to claim someone who I don't have a social security number for. And it can just, it can feel almost nightmarish. What makes it hard with being at the mercy of government is that I can't be like, to you. Uh, yeah, CPA well, it's like, really good. it's like, maybe that would help. There's no competitor I can go to. So for me, when there are more, when, when there is more competition, when you, when you can increase that, it, it makes everyone uh, better off. So I, so when it comes to regulations dealing with monopoly and things like that, uh, I, I can see some role for the state and antitrust laws. But I've read other economists who've said that in general, the thing that usually keeps monopolies sustained is actually state intervention in the long run. Hmm. It's very hard to maintain monopolies in, in free and efficient markets. Okay. What, what would you make from this kind of... Uh set of principles then of, of uh, the kind of claim that's common in, in political discourse. Um, you probably heard Bernie Sanders say this before of uh, 
the idea that that your uh, general stance regarding capitalism uh, at least concretely results or has resulted, uh, at least in the United States, in a form of socialism for the rich. Um, like that, this is one of the kind of language games I see that I actually think is fairly effective to say, well, we don't. People say we don't want socialism. We have socialism for the rich. Yeah, exactly. That was good. I miss hearing that Bernie more. So do I. I love Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> to me, I mean, I totally disagree with him, but he's he's definitely fun to listen to. He stays on point. I just, I love, know. I love. He just, I know why he's so popular. He's just like everybody's like brash uncle. <laughs> I love on SNL once they did like, and now we have Bernie Sanders. Bernie, how you doing? I'm good. A little hungry, but I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> no, just. Anywho, but well, I, I, I've heard that term thrown around and I don't follow. I mean, I follow politics, but I'm not like a super like politico. Like mm -hmm. for me and the work that I'm trying to focus on is apologetics. Though for me also, and by, well, I'll get to the Bernie thing here shortly. It's kind of like a strange thing. Sometimes people will will say to me, I, I, I'll put this out there. It's an interesting critique I've heard when I go out and I defend capitalism and things like that, that. On the one hand, all I care about is materialism and promoting a materialist and, and lavish view of life. Whereas for me, I would say, well, no, I want to. I promote this because I believe it's the most efficient way to carry out Jesus's commands in Matthew twenty-five to feed the poor, feed the hungry, mm -hmm. uh, clothe you know, clothe the naked, this and that. And then other people, distributists usually, have then said to me, well, Trent, you're going to get all, you know, you're focusing so much on giving the poor all these material goods when really that's going to take their eyes off of God. Mm. Uh, when you're focused so much on trying to raise their material welfare that in being poor, they're more focused on religious goods. So I'm like, wait, I'm, it's, it's like I, I can't win with well, you guys. I, Either I'm, I'm, you know. I would much rather you didn't keep importing distributists into our otherwise sensible debate here. Sorry, but, but, some, but some other people. And, <laughs> no, and other, I think but right. what's, what's hard is I do hear that, that pronged approach. Now, now with um, Sanders, um, I guess that comes to the idea, you know, that this will... Within capitalism, you're going to have intramural debates about, for example, what kind of tax, what kind of tax policies and revenue policies are best for government to be able to assist people. And so, I, I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. When I hear socialism for the rich, usually that seems to be a critique of things like tax cuts for high earners or for large businesses with the idea that these individuals will reinvest their extra, that when you are wealthy enough, that when you are lower income, your excess wealth is usually, uh, it is spent or it is consumed. Uh, where, whereas when you're a high income earner, your excess wealth tends to be invested. You don't just, you don't just consume it. Accumulation. Uh, and, there, and then there's going to be different debates about how effective these different these different policies are frankly just to get my little political rant out of me all right there, there's a lot there's a lot of conservatives out there uh who to me betray the basic principles they want to do things like tax cuts and things like that but then they also don't want to rein in the spending you have to do with that to make it effective mm -hmm. otherwise you know so but yeah so i, I would say with that there are these different policies but, but what's good in both a free market and a free um a free society. What's interesting is I noticed this Elizabeth Warren got in a spat with Amazon on Twitter a few months ago. Sure. And she, she was saying like, you guys don't uh, pay your fair share of the taxes. And, and the Amazon Twitter, which is weird, this is what life has come down to, <laughs> yeah. says to her, and we don't know who it is, yeah, exactly. the guy running the account, yeah. says to her, well, you wrote the rules, the tax rules. If you don't like them, change them. Yeah. 
And he has a point. You know? Yeah, I mean, the, the sense I get for uh, socialism for the rich uh, it is in some ways about taxes. Um, but but it relates basically to the idea that sort of the, the, the national budget is has a kind of familial form in the sense that that like it, the, you know you can't what do you mean um it a budget for a nation is just a series of maximal degrees higher than a budget for a family in the sense that you know you can't spend money that you don't have unless you can borrow it unless you can borrow <laughs> enough credit well unless, we're you know, we're well we're doing that all the time and it makes me incredibly concerned i mean concerned. i i have I, i'm actually pretty fis- uh, probably more fiscally conservative than some might think of in terms of uh, uh, uh spending without raising revenue like i think the 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 inability for instance for democrats to talk about like no we need to raise uh more money for the programs that we want to buy i think that's actually a more conservative and more sensible thing to say and they often don't say it because of a kind of rhetoric of of you know uh socialism uh Mm-hmm. And you have to admit, and I heard you say this, and I want to give you full credit for this, that the crying wolf game about socialism from conservatives um, doesn't benefit their larger ideological no. uh, it's, arguments. It's, utter- <laughs> it's utterly stupid. It's utterly stupid to do that uh, with, with anything that is a threat, whatever kind of threat that you see. Uh, it's kind of like when traditionalist Catholics, and I would consider myself I mean, I, I go to a Byzantine church. We don't even have pews. I'm, a I'm so traditional. In my opinion. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> that, that's another term that's so elastic. But it's like <laughs> when a traditionalist Catholic says, oh, don't do that. That's modernism. Oh, God. And I'm like, well, I don't even know what... That's the heresy of modernism. I don't even know what that word means. Yeah. And so, like, if everything you critique is modernism, yeah. then you you're, you just play that you don't know what you're talking about. And it's similar with anything when... Um, although I, I would flip this over to um, the political left, sure, sure. If every conservative is a Nazi, yeah, absolutely. I mean they were like they were. I mean they were saying like Mitt, Mitt Romney, yeah, yeah, Romney, yeah, yeah, yeah. is a Nazi. No, no, so no. if everybody's a Nazi, then it's then you've got people who will say, well, well, I don't care if the guy I vote for is an out and out xenophobe mm-hmm. and racist because you've said everybody I pick is mm-hmm. a Nazi. So who cares? No, That's no. sort of the inverse no, of when I, the social. I agree. They I cry think, socialism. Yeah, I think the Nazi game, the the argumentum ad Hitlerum is 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 awful. Um, one thing I know, and in fact, I noted this in, in my uh, critical discussion uh, a couple days ago on communism, mm-hmm. was that, you know, um, the the allied powers, you know, the UK, the the, the United States, Canada, France, um, mm-hmm. they uh, they united with the USSR uh, because red communism and liberal society saw fascism as a greater threat in the moment and they united in in an outright global right. world war against that and ideologically does that um should that console any communist or any uh defender of free society and democracy probably not but it definitely happened and i think thinking about it more critically other than just right. defaulting to a cold war mentality but, is bad yeah but go so going back to the crying wolf over socialism yeah, yeah i think that's and this goes to the uh, the um the alternative like i've read ibram x kendi's criticisms of, of capitalism mm-hmm. uh and he, he tends to define it the problem is he defines capitalism according to just a particular <laughs> hyper-political view of being against any kind of entitlement program, 
uh, any kind of public spending. But even you have someone like Friedrich Hayek uh, from the, the 1940s, uh, who is you know the one of the the most informed critics of socialism. He himself saw no problem with government programs to combat things like unemployment or things sure. like that. But he said, provided that they do not require that special kind of planning, which according to its advocates is to replace the market. That's what he was he was concerned. Yeah, about. Yeah, I mean the my the 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 rejoinder to the to the uh, to the welfare communist uh, socialism charge on my side would be something along the lines of you don't get um, voting rights women don't get the vote uh, unions union protections uh, all of these kinds of things and and welfare programs in the US WIC uh, uh, chip all these things they don't uh, emerge sort of spontaneously they always emerge from a broadly speaking uh, political left or labor politics or workers sure worker politics. but I but I will but I will say um, on the two fronts there uh, one when it comes to labor unions I, I'm I would say an important element of capitalism is these free associations mm-hmm. whether it's free associations with workers owners or free associations among the workers themselves mm-hmm. so I would I would be a strong union advocate provided though that there are, are checks and balances sure. Um what I am concerned about is not so much private sector unions, but public sector unions. Because in, let's say you have a private sector union at a, a clothing store. Sure. And the workers gather together. They place their demands for wages that are, that are higher than the cost of the labor sure. and are not feasible. If they do that, the store raises the price of the goods. They yeah, lose yeah. revenue. You have an interlocking check and balance system. Sure. But with a public sector union, whether it's teachers unions or police unions, frankly, yeah. you or have a problem where yeah, you, you don't have the check and balance because that entity ha- will always be be funded usually. It's compulsory in that regard. So then you have the situation where you have, whether it's the the police federation or the teachers union, they're bargaining across the table from the elected officials they help to get into office. Sure. And so it creates sure. a uh, a hanky kind of yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. situation. No, I was I was also talking about how one of the biggest critics that I've read in print of of just the idea of a, of a trade union in terms of corruption was actually Marx. Um, because, Interesting, because a lot of the a lot of uh, a lot of the early associations of labor were were built on pretty dirty politics that were playing with the House of Commons, and and they saw Marx's critique as a threat to their getting kind of control of the. Uh, of, of the workers' side of the game in that case, and so he has some pretty nasty things to say about them. But no, this is all yeah. this is all really reasonable. Um, I wonder if we can now jump into the Catholic side of things. So yes, I, I, I texted. I was supposed to go out to dinner with my wife and in laws, but oh so no. far I don't think we're I don't think we're leaving oh no. yet. Oh, we're good. We're good. Okay. She'll, she'll let me know. <laughs> all right. Yeah, you just let me know. Um, I have proposed what I hope is a moderate, but but maybe hopefully sensible idea that there at least does exist or could exist a particular form of anti-capitalism within Catholic social teaching. Obviously, that puts you in not a super hot seat, but it forces you to make some distinctions, unless you want to deny sure. the claim from the get-go. No, I, I, okay. I don't deny the claim. I appreciated how you, you phrased the question to say to me, there's been a long, I would agree with you, there is a long-running critique of capitalism, uh, of, of markets in particular. Sure. And that makes sense to me if free markets hinge upon voluntary associations among people, 
because of human sinfulness, many of our voluntary associations won't necessarily be sure. for the benefit of others. Sure. And so those those critiques will be will be be necessary. Rerum Novarum, Leo makes it very clear about factory worker owners who treat their employees like they're bags of coal mm -hmm. and subjects women and children to work that's mm -hmm. unsuitable for their sex and for their sex and age mm -hmm. and things like that. I thought of this analogy. I don't know what you would think of this. I would say that the church's overall teaching uh, would be that capitalism or at least free market economics in and of itself. Well, here I'll, I'll read this from uh, Pope Benedict XVI and Deus Caritas Est. Okay, he sure. said, economy and finance as instruments can be used badly when those at the helm are motivated by purely selfish ends. Instruments that are good in themselves can thereby be transformed into harmful ones. But it is man's darkened reason that produces these consequences, not the instrument per se. So my analogy would be, I feel like sometimes the way the church talks about free markets, it's kind of the way when you look at the 2000 years of Catholic uh, tradition on the church's teaching on sexuality or the marital act. Mm. Uh, I would say like when you go back to like, especially the church fathers and Aquinas and forward, there's a heavy amount of skepticism about the morality of the sexual act. <laughs> now, the, the Manichians are rejected who say that it's evil. Right, right. But, there, but we seem to have a transition away from it being uh, there are evils associated with it that we tolerate and move, and that it's only for the procreative end of this act that, that justifies sure. the whole thing to moving towards, well, the unitive and the procreative end are both equally important. Sure. And, and so, and I think that's just, and I think it's a rightful... So you could say there's a long-running critique of sexuality in Catholicism, and I think justly so, because sexuality, it's like it's like with Benedict and Markets. It's like man's darkened reason produces the consequences, not the instrument per se. Obviously, it's not the marital act itself that's bad. It's man's darkened reason applying it and the fruits of it. And so to take something that is so good and powerful and can lead to bad consequences requires this kind of finessing. And, and I would see a similar kind of treatment in the church's teaching about, about free markets, though it's much more recent because markets are more recent. Right, course, but um, yeah. I don't know if that, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think the, the punchline, uh, uh, for, for saying well, what kind of capitalism is the anti-capitalism of the church. It's this, uh, Francis's, uh, unfettered capitalism. Um, that's been his, uh, his kind of rhetorical expression. There's also, though, right. been a, a critique of the at least the rhetoric or the metaphor of the of trickle down economics as being, um, you know, that's in yeah, it's in Fratelli too. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, for my purposes, by the way, I prefer some of the older, um, like the passages in Rerum Novarum, because they resemble so much those same passages from the Working Day. Like they, they're very concrete, right? You know, they they get you right on a factory floor and show you this is wrong. Oh, this sure, is wrong. but 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 even in those in those frameworks, you have Pope Pius XI talk. He says that now we shall examine capitalism because of its most bitter accuser, socialism, mm -hmm. has brought charges mm -hmm. against it. And he says that this system in and of itself is not to be blamed. And then he proceeds to give, in Quadrigesimo Anno, all kinds of qualifiers about wages being too high or too low. And though he does talk about how 
what is good about how businesses have incorporated the standards that Leo demanded in Rerum Navarum. Many of many of them had come to fruition by the time of Quadragesimo Anno, mm-hmm. uh, basic working conditions and, and and things like that. So yeah, I would say we'd see that as well in the older encyclicals. Yeah, no, I mean it's 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 I think it's it's even throughout. Um, one thing I, I just to point out that I agree with you with, and I've defended uh, your point on this on other podcasts is is that I am. It would be convenient, and I am sympathetic to the idea that, for instance, the preferential option for the poor is mm. something that we trace from the prophets, the 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 orphan, the alien, and and the widow. Um, what I don't mm. accept on certain accounts, like David Bentley Hart's uh, account recent recently that you, that you mentioned, and a few others, is the idea that when we talk about socialism. Um, or when we talk about anti-capitalism, that we mm-hmm. see this actually happening in vivo historically in Acts, right? Um, I think that the oh, in Acts, in a- you mean Acts of the Apostles? Yes, yes, and Luke's uh, uh, sequel. Um, uh, right. So, so, so you, I think um, you kind of reject the idea. You say the kind of the historical conditions have changed since uh, the times of Scripture and the times of the early church, and so. We have to kind of really focus on a contemporary discussion. I actually accept this um, more historical approach to talking about economics and political well, economy. And well, actually, in Deus Caritas Est, uh, Pope Benedict, reflecting on the early church's communal life, he, he says this. He says, though, as the church grew, this radical form of material communion could not, in fact, be preserved, but its essential core remained. Within the community of believers, there can never be room for a poverty that denies anyone what is needed for a dignified life. Mm. So, yeah, so I, yeah, but I'm appreciative of your your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, no, I think it's um, I think it's a bit of a sleight of hand in at least the argumentation uh, that's mm-hmm. made. So it doesn't mean that I don't accept. Uh, just to be clear, for Catholics, I'm not saying that I uh, don't accept uh, Scripture as having the ability to give moral instruction to our day-to-day lives, nor do I say that, you know, the, the early church fathers or patristic texts don't apply. Right. But I think that there's, uh, we have to then practice our judgment in a way that doesn't over-determine um, how that application gets made. And, and that's right. an important point for me, especially when we're dealing with economics. Mm-hmm. Because for me, economics is a science. We both agree it, it didn't exist definitely before Adam Smith and really came into development after him. For me, economics is the science of understanding, different ways to define it, the science of how man makes a living, understanding the interactions between producers and consumers, that this is is a science. And and my uh, frustration can be sometimes those who want to import Catholic moral principles to say, well, here is just what we should do economically. To which I want to say, well, the problem is it's it's a science and like sociology, you can try to do something and then the market and humans will react in a predictable way based on what we study. And we have to make our policies in line with the way humans tend to act in these circumstances. Hmm. Um, So what what my point would be, like if we look at applying what the church fathers, what what the Bible and what the church fathers say about caring for the poor, uh, I would agree with much of what they they say, but um, we also have to understand that just as we do not restrict ourselves to healing the sick to first century solutions that we would find in the fathers or scripture, 
we ought not restrict ourselves to helping the poor to the solutions we would find in the New Testament scripture, because just as medical science is advanced, economic science is advanced. Yeah, no, no, that that uh, that that line of, of that sequence of, of thought to me strikes me as sensible. And it's also one of the reasons why I won't really argue with distributists, because I think they're operating in a kind of fantasy um, uh, uh, zone of reality. They don't have a sense of a, of a real oh, world. Oh, it'd be entertaining if you had one on your podcast, Sam. Why? I don't know. So I can tell them they're playing <laughs> fantasy games? Like, again, I... I tell, I'll try to... Maybe I... There there are some that I know who are not as old school that are more like Neo and okay. they try to apply distributist principles yeah. within a market economy, which I think yeah, sometimes yeah. tracks with sometimes... Yeah. I mean, I would saying, be interested I'm, in talking to a, dis- a, a scholar of distributism about Belloc and about the servile state and about his essays sure. in a historical sense. Sure, I'm very interested in that. Don't get me wrong. That's real. Yeah. What I don't like is whenever they use that to to import themselves into these fantasy, economic fantasies uh, that don't exist. Now, I think actually the Pope's, though, might be a little bit on edge. So so there is, a, there is a, a, a squeaky part in this position that I think we both hold in common, or at least an approach, our method. Because uh-huh, sure. um, the Pope's often refer to church fathers and the scripture in their Catholic social teaching as ways right. to make arguments about the present. And this has always struck me as of a course. weak spot in my... So like in Popolorum Progressio, um, mm-hmm. uh, Paul VI says, as St. Ambrose put it, and then he quotes Ambrose, you are not making a gift of what is yours to the poor man, but you are giving him back what is his. You have been appropriating things that are meant to be for the common use of everyone. The earth belongs right. to everyone, not to the rich. Paul VI right. says, these words indicate that the right to private property is not absolute and unconditional. Now, this strikes me as a difficult True. claim to evaluate, given the method that we've uh, decided here. Um, well, and, and I think what, the, what we have to do is, when we're zeroing in on this, we have to understand what are the essential truths that we are, are, are being, we are receiving in Scripture uh, in scripture and in the fathers, what are the essential truths and what are the truths that are more contingent? So an essential truth might be, uh, you know, always treat your fellow human being with dignity. A contingent truth might be, uh, always practice kindness towards your slave. You know, I mean, Colossians, uh, Paul makes it very clear to, you know, you masters be kind to your slaves because you have, you, you both have a master who is in heaven, but we wouldn't read that rigidly to say that there's nothing wrong with having slavery today. Uh, but the essential mm-hmm. truth, I and mean, you could apply that to owners and workers, employers, people have authority over others. And, and that, I mean, that's the process of, of theology, of avoiding the, uh, I, I, if I'm talking with you, I can make all kinds of literary references. I don't feel like snooty or anything, you know, yeah, the, yeah. in the Odyssey, no, it's, it's what's fine. it? The, the, the Scylla uh, is, you know, yeah. rock and hard place. The, the Scylla of, um, hyper traditionalism that we just read the letter and the father, the father's in scripture by the letter. And that's that. And so it's, you can shoot Muslims with crossbows, but not Christians because the second Lateran council said so, uh, or mm. the, the Caribus, I'm, I'm butching all of this from the Odyssey. It's been so long since I read the Odyssey. The, the other extreme of, uh, oh, it's all completely contingent and it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's nothing universal. Right, can, right, right, right. You know, marriage is whatever you want it to be. Th- that I think is, is when you're trying to find the narrow lane here in theology, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think though that the reason this is difficult is not only for methodological reasons, but it, um, and this is something I think that I think both of us would agree with, which is that 
Catholic social teaching and the church's magisterial voice. And here, again, you're an apologist, so we're we're firmly in, in, in the area where you can, I hope, speak with confidence here. Sure. Um, uh, but it's it's we've argued the compatibility of socialism, and here we're kind of not really arguing about the compatibility of capitalism. We're having a slightly different discussion. But neither capitalism in its modern sense, nor socialism in its modern sense, nor any other ideologically recent arrival is the same as. It's like compatibility is not identical to the church. And so when the church teaches Catholic social teaching, I think we have to kind of, I think I have to accept that the the church's voice is always going to speak in a metaphysically different register, all things considered, than a secular socialist or what have you, even though those registers can be impacted by the church and, and vice versa. It, it's going to be, it is going to be hard when you apply the church's teaching. It's like when we start with areas of like dogmatic theology, the, the Trinity, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Marian dogma, Christology, uh, the, Christology. Uh, it, it's, it's, um, it's not simple, but it's a lot more cut and clear and you have infallible definitions but then it's like concentric circles. Then you move away from that to systematic theology, mm-hmm. uh, moral theology, and then like the outer the outer circuit. I feel like is when you get into things like Catholic social teaching that are going to be difficult. Where there, whereas you start with dogmatic theology, there's very small margin for just prudential judgments. Like in Christology, there's just a few matters of speculation. Sure. But then when you get out to Catholic social teaching you get way, way more prudential judgments because of the, the dynamic nature of how, I mean, give, I mean, just seeing how society has changed even in the past uh, 30 years, sure. 20 years, sure. not to mention 200 or 2000. Yeah. So then in applying it, you have more room for these prudential judgments. And here, the, now the church can weigh in on the prudential judgments and it should, and it does. But and 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 those um, teachings should be given consideration. But even in in Donum Veritatis uh, from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, talked about how the magisterium is not always free from error in its inter, in its uh, discussions about interventions in the prudential order because it might not have all the facts. It could sure. not have everything. I mean, I mean, I'll give you an, an example. It's not. I wouldn't say it's magisterial, but it's it's unfortunate. Okay. Like I I am. Um, one thing that I, I believe would help, like uh, both for global poverty and I'm concerned about climate change. Like yeah. there's a lot of conservatives that would jump down my throat for that. <laughs> but to me, both of them would be addressed very well by the promotion of nuclear power generation. Okay. And I think like th- that would just be gangbusters to, to for, for all of that. Sure. And yet uh, when Pope Francis visited Japan uh, like a year or two ago, he was, you know, he was saying we shouldn't have nuclear power, it's, it's not safe. And now, mm-hmm. to be fair, most of the Japanese citizens agreed with him because they're still freaked out by the Fukushima inc- incident after the Japanese tsunami. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, 67, you know, 60,000 well, people, it's like 600,000 people. Nagasaki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, and that's nuclear is going to be a touchy subject in Japan. Yeah. But over in China, like 600,000 people a year die from coal dust, from coal power mm-hmm. plants. So it's like, I and China's building a lot of nuclear plants. They know this. So for mm-hmm. me, it's like when I read sometimes in the encyclicals, I, 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 I see things in there that, that rightfully challenge others. Sure. Uh, like for me, I'm a pretty open borders guy. Another thing people will jump down my throat about. Mm-hmm. And then things that challenge me that I have to 
maybe I got to reconsider this. And then other things I think that this is a prudential judgment I'll give consideration, but I don't know if it was entirely well thought out. Sure. So that's, that might be. No, that's good. That. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I know, I know there's a lot of people who followed this interaction going backwards. So quickly answer this and then we'll get to question four is, um, uh-huh. And I, I don't know if I've actually wondered this because I never understood uh, things in, in, in bad faith ever myself. But uh-huh. there are many who believe that the argument on the compatibility thesis regarding socialism was in your mind a kind of almost like a dogmatic situation. Whereas my argument was that it's more relativistic and there's all kinds of lines between there. But I think we both agree that like these are both uh, within the prudential range of reasonable opinion one uh, can and should have uh, as Catholics, it, right? Yeah, I think here's where the problem is going to arise uh, on this issue. I would say that the church's teaching on the incompatibility of socialism and Catholicism, uh, it's not infallibly defined. I believe it is repeated consistently enough across a wide variety of, of authorities to fall under requiring the religious submission of mind and will. Now, that being said, the problem then becomes, uh, what do you mean by socialism? Of course. That's yeah, where yeah. It, it's kind of like the church's condemnation of usury. I would say that even following John Noonan, who wrote the, the big, I got his, I found his out of print book on the subject uh, okay. <laughs> uh, for only like 30 bucks. Normally it's like 500 bucks. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Even he in that book says the church never defined this infallibly, mm-hmm. but it's pretty like the church has always taught and continues to teach that usury is wrong. Right. But then we get into the nitty gritty. What is usury? Right. Is right, it right, charging right. interest on any loan yeah. or is it exploitative unjust? Sure, sure. And so I think, I, I mean, I talk to a lot of people who tell me, you know, I, you know, Trent, I can't believe you're saying Catholic can't be a socialist. You're saying I can't believe in unemployment benefits and, and, and you know, public parks. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm yeah. talking about the, the, the primary ownership of, of the means producing the means of goods and services. Sure. So for me, I would think it would really depend on how you define the particular term sure. and, and how you apply. You I would say that, that like, like, like some people would like, like, when I become a Canadian uh, citizen and I can vote here, I'll probably mm-hmm. become a registered member of the NDP, Charles Taylor's party. The mm-hmm. And it is the not communist, but uh, socialist uh, uh, party. And even there are some socialist holdouts say it's not socialist enough, blah, blah, blah. Just like I'm a dues paying member of the DSA, uh, which has a very uh, bad rep amongst leftists because it's kind of like the left wing of the Democratic Party, basically. Um, it doesn't have kind of its do you mean, own Do you mean agenda. leftists like like communists? People are left PSL of the people. DSA? Glor- yeah, yeah. So Party of Solidarity and Liberation folks see the DSA as just like the sellout, you know, not serious. Um, and, and those are the people who I generally get into big disagreements with on the left. Um, well, yeah, that, and that goes to like. And you're not. When what I'm saying is that you're not saying a Catholic can't. You can't. You're not saying like Charles Taylor cannot be a, a a big figure in the NDP. You're not saying that Catholics can't be in the DSA. These political associations it, me, aren't it, things. It depends. It ultimately depends because once again, even that term "democratic socialist," mm-hmm. it's it's going to be elastic. If it's a way of oh, sure. implementing classical socialism via democratic means, I would say that you can't. If it's a means of Promoting, for example, uh, if it, let's take for example, your goal as democratic socialist is to institute policies so that companies have an easier time allowing for workers to be co uh, co owners of a of a firm. 
mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't be opposed with that because you're still leaving that free agency there. Sure. But sure, sure. so so it's once again it's about finding the, the yeah. gradient that's involved. Whether it's I guess if it's like democratic socialist for me, as long as it's more on the democratic side than yeah, the socialist yeah, yeah. side, Look, and it's I, not yeah, yeah. that that's that's that is where because for me people will say like well Trent you're not for socialism you don't think because like Covenant Eyes is a um, an a pornography accountability software program okay and they recently I believe sold the company and all of the workers co own it okay I'm, and I'm not opposed sure, to sure. that. There are people, there's this guy, oh gosh, what is, he was a, he had a credit card company, I think his name's Dan Price. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I want to say that, that that's what it is. Uh, he, uh, he, de- he decided he had 120 employees at a credit card company. Oh, is this when he paid he, them all the same amount? Paid him 75 grand. Yeah, he took, exactly. he was yeah, making yeah. like a $4 million mm-hmm. salary and he voluntarily took a giant pay cut gave his employees a raise. And there were conservatives saying, that's just socialism. I'm like, you're an idiot. (laughs) You're an idiot if you're going to say that's socialism because it is prices money. If he makes $3 million and he wants to reinvest. Now, I I do think, though, that you can spend money. And I think there are ways Price could have spent the money more efficiently to help more people. That's effective altruism. That's a different... I would would love to buy a million malaria nets, you know, or or fund a malaria vaccine, but whatever. But if Price chooses to do that with his money... That's his business. You can't say it's but when government, but if government starts to encroach and try to make every CEO a Dan Price, that's where I'm going to have mm-hmm. issues where we're going to have unintended, unfortunate consequences. Yeah, no, that's a uh, that's that's super that's super helpful. And and by the way, Jacques Maritain and Emmanuel Mounier, two philosoph- French philosophers who I really kind of uh, think a lot of, they had this very dispute in which Maritain says, "I'm a social democrat, but I won't be a democratic socialist." And Mounier was a democratic socialist who thought that the social democrat move was just kind of eroding the ground they stood on. And they 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 both occupied, I mean, when you start lining up sort of like a chart of what they believed in issues-wise and theologically and stuff, I mean, they well, occupy well, almost all the same space. Sure. And what's interesting, if you go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy and you mm-hmm. look at the entry on, and I love how you can pronounce it in Al-Busher, Jacques Mertain. You know, <laughs> I'm so awful. But if you look at him, uh, it says in there, while his political philosophy led him, at least in his time, to be considered a liberal and even a social democrat, he eschewed socialism itself. Yes, so, no, I mean, it is, and it was yeah. because of Mounier, because he wouldn't, uh, yeah. he wouldn't sign on to Mounier's uh, more overtly socialist project, and for right. for me, uh, just to be clear, I would never, ever, and I have never, and will never say that a Roman Catholic in the United States cannot be a member and even running for office within the Republican Party uh, mm-hmm. or the Democratic Party. Or, in other words, I don't know if there's a party in existence within the United States right now that I would say no one could be a member of. I mean, this would include Libertarians, Greens, you know, PSL, DSA. Um, uh, I can't think of one. Um, And I think that that's important Mm -hmm. because sometimes I think people hear these things as us telling people who you can associate with. And I think... I think we both believe in freedom of association here. Well, we, 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 we have to do that, though I do think it is important that as we, we associate, we have uh, we are clear on the things we cannot compromise on sure. and we are open to dialogue sure, on sure, the sure. open questions. No, absolutely. And as long as we do that, it can be, it can be fruitful. Great. Well, look, um, you've been very generous with your time. 
this final question is very kind of philosophical. It kind of gets us down to human flourishing and, and in some sense, the question of the good life. Um, I don't want you to feel uh, pinholed here at all because I genuinely think that at the end of the day, one right. needs to be able to give some account of how the views they promote, especially in public, you know, in the Agora, uh, promote the good life as far as they see it. So, you know, I'm not inclined to probably ask too many counter questions here, but if you want to give us a sense of what your vision of the good life is, uh, yeah, I would I'll love just, to hear. Because I would rather give an unfortunately brief answer to a question that deserves a, a, a quite lengthy one. But I think like, how, you know, Trent, how do you reconcile capitalism, Catholicism, and the pursuit of the good life. I would say ultimately our good is not in this world. It is a, it is a kingdom that is not of this world. And so our ultimate good is, is union with Jesus Christ and to become holy, at, be, be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect and to grow in the, the, the life of grace that we received, we received through the sacraments. Uh, and in doing that then we uh, model Christian charity in our various stages of life. For some people that will be married life, uh, could be religious, could be priestly. Uh, for most people, uh, you will also have to model that Christian charity in life uh, through work. Uh, mo mo for in order to have a society where we can function, uh, we will have to, some people will work. Uh, I think everybody, I mean, everybody works. Some people, their work includes ownership and oversight of, of other workers. Uh, and so we have to be, to be cognizant of that. But I do believe that human beings, uh, it's unfortunate because of our sinfulness, we, uh, we do veer towards evil. We're not totally depraved. We veer towards evil, but God in his mercy chose to not centrally plan our lives like a Calvinist <laughs> ordained deity. Uh, as I reject central planning economically and theologically. You're not a determinist. Uh, God yeah, God gave us freedom in that regard, and sometimes it is misused, but God is able to work everything to good to those who love him. And so just as God gave us that freedom in our, in our, our spiritual life, and, we are, and that is key to our ability to be able to flourish, I, have, I believe the testimony of reason, empirical sciences, and history, when people are freely able to associate with one another in markets, uh, to be able to... Um, meet each other's needs in fair, free uh, transactions that respect the dignity of each, of each other. I, I think that that provides a good foundation so that people's material needs are met and then they can grow um, in their spiritual needs. But ultimately, yeah, I would say that markets, uh, just to, I, what I would say, like I quoted Pope Benedict a while back in Deus Caritas Est, that the fault is in man's darkened reason, not the instrument per se. So we're always trying to renew human beings within uh, this, this free market approach we have to meet each other's material needs. And then ultimately, though, the market cannot meet all of our needs. Pope Francis has been absolutely right. A consumerist culture is wrong. Uh, we cannot meet all of our needs through through the market uh, on Amazon. Our most important needs are those that are going to be met spiritually. But before somebody can hear the good news, if they're starving to death, it's good for them to be able to eat something first, and then they're in a good place to hear the the good news of of the bread of life that that never um, that never corrupts and leads to everlasting life. So, so there you go. That's <laughs> best I could deal with, with with tying it all together.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1, and special thanks to Trent Horn. I would like to again thank my sponsors, Whip and Stock Publishers, Give Us This Day, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, Where Peter Is, The Juan Diego Network, and Commonweal Magazine. And once again, very special thanks to the Institute for Christian Socialism, and be sure to take a look at their ongoing membership drive. The friends of the show are the Commonweal Podcast, the Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Golsley, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Kush Classics. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to all of these wonderful friends, to all this wonderful media, and also to the wonderful sponsors, and especially the Institute for Christian Socialism. And I'd also like to give a shout out to Trent for replaying uh, this very debate on his podcast, The Council of Trent, and I'm running a reciprocal link uh, with him in the show notes as well. Please share this episode and subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform. Follow us on social media and feel free to interact with us there. Every bit of interaction really helps. The season is obviously kind of rounding itself down, but I want to continue to share the content and messages uh, and really find ways to keep the conversation going of season one and, of course, to begin the planning and anticipation and work that goes into season two. Next week, we have our final interview uh, on the theme of music, which is a deeply and centrally important theme for this show that has, in many cases, been an implicit and oblique, and even in some sense, the form but not the content of folk phenomenology. We're going to talk about that as explicit content with uh, a talented and insightful uh, musician Jaya Lakshmi Narayanan. The conversation is lengthy but substantive and I must say it really shook me up I think from some of my undogmatic slumbers with respect to music and in particular um, my just vast ignorance of questions of not only uh, classical Western music, but also in many cases, the rigors and technical requirements of some of the sub-genres within that tradition, in particular with respect to ancient music. Um, So this is really, I think, an episode that... um, brings to the center and to the forefront uh, a theme that I have been exploring not only with my speech but also through instrumentation, through production, through recording, through attention to the sonic, uh, to the aesthetic, to the tonal, to these kinds of things. This episode allows uh, me and us to explore it in a more explicit and direct kind of a way. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by Sam Rocha. That's me. If you'd like to learn more about me and my work, you can visit my website, www.samrocha.com.
I'm recording this segment right now uh, in the great state of Texas, my home state, uh, surrounded by my family. I'm actually at my parents' house right now. I think it's important to share that just to uh, let you know that the work of folk phenomenology is not only surrounded by music and by instrumentation, but also by community and by conviviality and by support and by so many people who are truly the conditions for the possibility of its existence. And I want to thank every single one of you who's listening, everyone who's reached out, but especially in this case, those who haven't perhaps reached out to me. I want you to know that I uh, think of you and above all that I thank you uh, for sticking with this podcast uh, and its opening season. And I hope we can have a lot more conversations, including debates like the one we heard today. Well, it's time to go out and love the world. Dilexit Mundu. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting out of the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. You love mm-hmm. it where you find it. Mm-hmm. where you find it. Mm-hmm. where you find it. Mm-hmm. where you find it. And you don't know where you know where it'll carry you. And it is a terrifying thing. Love it is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. And I'm through the eyes of our ears. We see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.